The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. I want to get into the Word this morning. As we get into the Word, I'm excited to finish up a series that we've been in uh, concerning seven steps to love. Now, as we get into the Word, I want to give you some things to look forward to. So if you're able to take notes there, you can jot these things down. These are some things that we can anticipate. Uh, If you're able to take some notes, you might consider writing this down. One, we're going to find the cause and effect of God's love. The cause and effect of God's love. Cause and effect. I think cause and effect is an important thing for us to understand. It's a good mentality for us to have. Oftentimes you'll see believers and their lives aren't going the way they think, but it's because they're not doing the things they ought to do. If we can catch cause and effect, we could really position ourselves to move forward very intentionally and not be set back. Another thing that we're going to find is why sin is a problem. Why sin is a problem. Now, this may not sound very intriguing to you, but as I think about sin, I consider the power of the blood of Jesus. I consider that forgiveness is now made available, that God's poured out this wonderful gift of mercy in Jesus Christ, that my sins are forgiven, they're washed away. So why is sin still an issue? Why is God still concerned about sin in my life? We're going to find out why, and it's very important that we know why. It can help elevate our convictions to choose what's right rather than to choose what's wrong. Another thing that we're going to find is how to never fail. How to never fail. Now, if you're like me, there's been things in your life at some point that maybe didn't go the way you intended for it to go. The world might love to brand that failure or whatever, but we're going to find out what we can apply to our lives to keep from failing in any situation or any circumstance. Now I want to get into the word very quickly here as we lay this foundation because I want to talk about the main point this morning uh, with most of our time. 2 Peter chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Now we've laid the foundation for this entire series. Peter is writing... He's writing wonderful things. He's talking about these promises that God's given us to help us to escape the corruption that's in this world and to establish us in the kingdom of God that we could actually function and operate in the nature of God. I want to read what he writes, 2 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 2, Peter writes, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord seeing that by his divine power he's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, that he's called us by Jesus to his own glory and excellence. Now verse 4. By these things he's granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that, I mean, can you say so that? So that is important. These promises have a purpose. These promises were not like the Girl Scouts where you just put on your merit badges and it shows that you've been there and done that. These promises are meant to have a long-lasting effect on our lives. They're not simply credentials. Well, I'm a grade 8 Christian, meaning that I have walked through patience and perseverance, but I'm still working on my brotherly kindness badge. 
These are meant to be things that God is bringing into our lives that affect how we see ourselves, how we see others around us, and how we behave. So God's calling us to his glory, and through these magnificent promises, the so that is so that we may become partakers in the divine nature. These promises are to make us more like God, to make us like Jesus. In everyday living, we have the ability to make choices. We have the option to choose to be like Jesus. And these promises are meant to equip us and empower us to do just that. And when we do that, it fulfills the rest of this passage, that we will escape the corruption that's in this world. So these promises are extremely important. These promises are the difference between being like Jesus or being like everyone else in the world. And God's calling us to be just like Jesus. Now it goes on to say this in verse 5. For this very reason, apply with diligence in your faith to supply moral excellence. These are the things that we need to be like Jesus. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. That means being able to overcome And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Now we've talked about all of these things up to this point. We're at love today. We spoke about moral excellence. I think it's amazing that everything in being like Jesus starts with moral excellence. That's the reason why there's such an attack on morality by our enemy. If morality comes out from beneath our feet, we're left with nothing to stand on. Though we could quote the scripture left and right, go to every prayer meeting, if we are immoral, we're nothing. But God's called us to stand firm on moral excellence. We talked about all of the other aspects of these things, that God would call us to his knowledge, that he would call us to self-control and perseverance. If you've missed those messages, I want to encourage you to revisit. You can find them on the website. You can find someone Look over at your neighbor and ask to copy their notes. Just find some way to get it because it's important. But today we're going to talk about love. Now I want to finish what Peter said here as he's talking about these things. Just to make sure that we catch the importance. That God's calling us to be just like Jesus. By giving us the opportunity to operate in moral excellence, in the knowledge of God, in self-control, in perseverance, in godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Because if these qualities are in us, this is in verse 8, if these qualities are yours and increasing, you will be useful and fruitful. Verse 9 reads like this. If we lack these qualities, we've become blind or short-sighted. We've forgotten about our forgiveness, our purification from our sins. That basically means we've forgotten about Christianity. Maybe one day we were in a service, got convicted and said, yes, I want that. But then as soon as we left, the world took over. And we forgot all about what we were supposed to be doing and how we're meant to be living and functioning. So then Peter goes on to say these as he closes off this passage. He says, therefore, be diligent and make certain that God's called you. He's chosen you. And as long as you practice these things, these things are that moral excellence, the knowledge of God. That self-control and perseverance, that godliness, the brotherly kindness and the love, as long as we're practicing those things, you will never stumble. And in this, there's entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and it will abundantly be supplied to you. That's a lot of reading, but I enjoy reading it. It's encouraging. It's exciting. 
I see entrance into the kingdom of God. I don't want to be a people who talk about the kingdom but never operate in it, never live in it, never actually touch it. I want to understand that we can make choices that let us live in the kingdom of God right here and right now. As we've spoken about those things, we've talked about the moral excellence, we've talked about the knowledge, we've talked about the self-control, the perseverance, the godliness, the brotherly kindness, and today I want to talk about love. Love is an awesome thing. The scriptures tells us that God is love. But I want to offer this to you and to me for the purpose of setting the platform for our conversation today. Love is our identity. If we don't have love existing right here in this group of people, then we kid ourselves that we are the church. We mislead ourselves that we're the body of Christ. I want to offer you a scripture. John chapter 13, verse 35. John 13, verse 35. Now it's Jesus speaking here. And Jesus is speaking to you and to me. He's giving us a very powerful instruction as he offers us these words. He says, by this all men. I mean, I love to just stop and let the words mean something to me. All. All. All is total. It's absolute. It's not some. It's not most. But it's all. If we can accomplish what Jesus is about to reveal, all of the world will know something about us. There will be no doubt whatsoever. All men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, we've got the one another right here. If you're sitting next to somebody, there's a one another. If you can look across the room and see somebody, there's a one another. Yeah, I had to throw that in there because you're by yourself right there. If you could throw a rock and hit somebody, how's that? You got a rock? No. There's a one another. We've got the one another. That's a lock. If you're wanting to just make this a two-step thing, you can just put one another, check. We've got that. That one another is right here. Now the question is, is there the love? Are we able to love one another? Not just to give it, but even receive it, which can be just as hard, if not harder. And it's when we come to that point where we don't just go to church together, we don't just sit across the room from each other, listen to the same sermons or sing the same songs, but we come into an understanding and awareness that we're meant to have so much more than that together, one another. We can come to a place where the whole world will know and understand that we're followers of Jesus because we'll look just like him. I told you we're going to find the cause and the effect of God's love. I want to offer that to you now. If you're taking notes, you can write down Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 5. It's really the last half of the verse. But the last half of the verse speaks volumes. It tells us the cause and the effect of God's love. God's love obviously being the cause, but it's going to reveal the effect, the powerful effect. An effect that we need to know so that we can have gratitude and thanksgiving stir in our lives so that we can be aware of what it is that God's doing by His love for us. And it's very important that we know what God's doing by His love for us. 
so that we can know what we need to do with our love for one another. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 5, the back half of this verse, it reads like this, The Lord your God has turned the curse into a blessing for you because He loves you. I emphasize the for you because I think some of us sometimes just think that God did this for Him. There's times in the scripture where God does things and he says, for my name's sake, for my name's sake, I'm going to do this. For my name's sake, I'm going to do this. That means God's doing it for him. For my name's sake, for my name's sake. But this goes out of its way to say, hey, you know what? God didn't do this for him. He didn't do it for his name's sake. He did it for you because he loves you. He turned the curse into a blessing for you because he loves you. There's the cause and the effect of God's love. God's love is powerful to the, to the point of turning around what is cursed into what is blessed. And when we come into an understanding of the cause and the effect of God's love, we can now set that as a standard. We can set that as a measure for what loving one another means for us. We can look around. We can see the people around us. And we can see the things where there's struggle, where there's captivity, where there's bondage and affliction. And we can do so much more than provide pity. We can provide solution. We're not meant to just feel bad for one another during trials and hardships. We're meant to turn those things around. And it's a wonderful thing that God's blessed us with. A powerful thing. And it's revealed in the life of Jesus. I think oftentimes we think that Jesus performed miracles just to get people's attention. But the reality is most of the miracles he performed, he said, hey, shh, don't tell anybody. Let's just keep this between the two of us. This wasn't a publicity stunt to spread the gospel. Rather, this was the result of love, taking what was bondage, what was captivity, and turning it around so that what was once death and poverty and sickness and disease became life and prosperity, health. And we have that same call to love. I think it's incredible to consider the following. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. If you wrestle with the idea that God's made you just like Jesus, consider this. Ephesians 5 verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love, just like Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. You know, God's not abusive in any way, shape, or form. He won't ask us to do something that we're not capable of doing. And here's a call to imitate him, to be just like him. That should tell us that what he's done through the blood and what he's done through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit has elevated our lives to function and operate just as we see Jesus function and operate. And you can consider many things in the scripture like that God has seated us in heavenly places that we're seated with Christ Jesus. 
I mean, I love that. That we're not seated next to Him, but with Him. In fact, some of your Bibles may have it interpreted in. You're seated in Christ Jesus. We're called to function and operate just like Him. And as we see Him moving, as we see Him ministering, we're seeing a manifestation, the full embodiment of God's love. That which can take the curse and turn it into a blessing. Jesus describes the love that He lives out. He's describing it to me and to you. He's living it. But He knows that we need to catch it. And so He talks about it. And though it's brief, it's effective. He's describing it and He describes it as follows. If you're taking notes, you can write down John 15, 13. In John 15, 13, Jesus is telling us that greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Now, I think when we read that, we picture the cross. We picture the beatings and the mockings, and we picture death and the flowing of blood down the cross and the spear in the side. We picture all of that. But I don't have to take a beating and be mocked to lay down my life. Being able to notice someone to see their need and put it before your own is laying down your life. Putting other people first. I think sometimes we have lost sight of who Jesus is. We, we read about the man in the Gospels. We start with him being born. But I got news for you. Him being born, you're already way late. He was, is, and is to come. He was around for a very long time before he was baby Jesus in the manger. He's infinite, eternal. So you have to consider, if you really want to know who Jesus is, as he's revealing these things to us, that we're called to be just like him, you've got to consider, well, who was Jesus before baby Jesus in the manger? Who was Jesus before Christmas? The Word says that he was with the Father, had equality with the Father, but didn't see that as something to be grasped after, which means he didn't put that before you. Rather, he emptied himself and chose to become a humble servant, to meet your needs, to put you first. And that's when you really come to know who he is. That under no obligation, he would easily put your need before anything of his own. That love has been manifest from the very beginning. A love that would lay down its own desires, its own comfort, its own well-being to see to it that your life came to know the fullness of comfort, the fullness of well-being. Desire fulfilled. Love's a commandment. In fact, it's not just a commandment. It's the greatest commandment. Oftentimes, Jesus was tested by people they would ask him questions that would be somewhat trivial in order to try to trap him in something. And at one point, Jesus is ministering and a group of men have gotten together to try to put Jesus into one of these verbal traps. And they come up with this question. 
They come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, we know you're busy, you know, healing the sick and all, but we've got a question for you. What's the greatest commandment? And I love that Jesus doesn't say, you know what, give me a couple days and I'll get back to you. But he just answers them. You can take it down for your notes. It's in several places in the gospel, but the one that we're looking at is Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to begin in verse 37. When Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He gives them this answer. He says, you'll love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And I like to think that when he finished that last word commandment, noise in the crowd kind of fired up. And then he continued to speak. Wait, 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 guys, I'm not done. You didn't let me finish. You'll love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And then he says this, the second is like it. Like it. Now the word like, I remember in grade school, in English class, like was a simile is what they called it. The word like and the word as. When you used the word like or you used the word as, you were saying that two objects were identical or they shared things in common. So Jesus is saying, loving God with all that you are is the greatest commandment. But wait, 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 wait. Don't miss it. If you stop there, you'll miss it. Let me finish. The second's just like it. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on to say this, and I think this is worth noting. He says, hey, on these two commandments, these two things, because they're like each other, you can't do one without doing the other. These two things are attached. Even if you put a period there and start a new sentence, these aren't separated. They're together. They're like each other. Loving God and loving your neighbor, one and the same. He goes on to say this. In verse 40, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now that's one that you can just sit and soak on. What does that mean? It means the entire scripture is pointless if we don't love God with all that we are and love our neighbor just the same. If we don't see those commandments as one and the same, if we don't see them as being like if we become a people who want to come to church and express our love for God and then go out and be jerks, we'll miss the point. The law and the prophets are filled with wonderful things. Instruction on living and living successfully. The promises of the Holy Spirit, the promises of prosperity, the promises of the kingdom of God and righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. All of these things are in the law and the prophets, but all of that stuff is just out of arm's reach if we can't fulfill that one thing. Because everything depends on us responding to those two commandments that are one and the same. And what's amazing to me is Jesus actually goes on to simplify this. Realizing that it might be hard for us to connect that like. Later on as he's speaking, he just reveals this in John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you. 
Let's just simplify it. Let's take ten commandments and let's just condense them all down into one. Because apparently ten is a bit much. So how about we just simplify it and I'll give you one. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now listen, let me tell you something. I get excited when I read love one another. I think that's a great thing. But then I get concerned when it's even as I have loved you. Because I start to think about how he loved me. He loved me when I hated him. And I mean hated him. He longed to be close to me when I wanted absolutely nothing to do with him. He spoke highly of me when I mocked him. He offered up his life when I was the one driving the nails. And I'm young, but had I been around 2,000 years ago, I would have been the one doing that. Now, when that's the measure of love that we're commanded to love with, it gives me pause to think, I'm going to need some help with this. I'm going to have to come into a new level of maturity My heart's going to have to change. My mind's going to have to change. Because the way I read this before was, hey, just try your best to get along with each other. And now what I'm seeing is God's calling me to live sacrificially. I no longer see the cross of Jesus Christ as the source of my salvation, but I see it as the example for the rest of my life. And I think that's why Jesus would say, hey, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to carry your cross daily. Guys, I'm going to do this once for all. You're going to do it every day. Wow. So I want to offer this as a thought because I know for me it it does seem open to interpretation. When God says things like love your neighbor as yourself, I think it's important that we just stop and talk about that. I think it's interesting that as yourself is in there. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think it's important that we love and value our lives. I think it's important that you see that God's made your life valuable and precious. That we steward our life well. That we set a standard of care and concern that we can then pour out and give to others around us. But then loving your neighbor, it seems a little bit open to interpretation. I've got a couple of neighbors. And there's been times where maybe we weren't in agreement. And so I might be wondering, well, what exactly does loving them mean, God? Surely there's some area here where we could find like this happy compromise where you're satisfied, I met the requirement to love my neighbor. And, you know, I really didn't have to do something that just, you know, really, really cost me. I want to give you a passage of Scripture that I believe defines what loving your neighbor means. Now, obviously, we've talked about the sacrifice of Jesus and that being a model. This isn't meant to compete with that. It's meant to confirm that. 
I want to give you a passage of scripture out of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Now, if you've ever read Leviticus before, it can be mind-numbing. With instruction upon instruction on how to handle this offering and how to handle that offering and how to do this and how to do that. But there's profoundly powerful heavenly wisdom in Leviticus. I want to offer this to you as we define loving our neighbor. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It's God speaking, and He's speaking to us. You, so who's you? Yeah, that's you. That's me. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Do you think we've caught that as a church? You want to know how many offenses I have seen within Christianity? How many grudges? How many vindictive acts? All right, pastor, well, I'm out of here, and I'm taking whoever I can with me. I haven't seen much love for the neighbor, but I think that we're called to be the solution to that. To come into an awareness and an understanding of what that means. That you can slander me, you can wound me, you can steal from me. You can do all of these things to me, but I cannot take vengeance or hold a grudge. And there's a reason why we can't take vengeance. Have you ever wondered why we call it taking vengeance, by the way, and not doing vengeance? I will do my revenge. You don't say that. You say, I'll take my revenge. You know, whenever we take revenge, we're literally taking it because the Scripture says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It belongs to Him. He's the only one that can vindicate our being slandered, our being wounded, our being stolen from. He's the only one that can vindicate it with justice. He's the only one that can make those things right in any way, shape, or form. Any effort on our part, though it may temporarily feel like some form of relief, is ultimately corrupted. And so the scripture tells us this. It says, leave room. Leave room for God to vindicate. Leave space for God to work on your behalf. Not with the attitude that, hey, God, go get them. Sick them. Get them, boy. But with the attitude that God's going to do something great. In the same way that he watched his own son be mocked, be beaten, be slandered, be wounded, be stolen from. They took his clothes. They took his clothes. And they gambled for him. That he would leave room for God to vindicate. And because he did, the result is redemption and life. And prosperity. And God's calling us to leave room for Him to vindicate. To not hold grudges. To not hold offenses. To not function and operate in vengeance. But to love our neighbor. I want to talk about why sin is bad really quick. I mean, I've been forgiven and you've been forgiven. The 
blood of Jesus is poured out, sin washed away, but yet God still seems to be concerned about sin. The whole point of Him, excuse me, washing me clean was so He could put the Holy Spirit inside of me. And the Word says this, the reason for the Holy Spirit, the Word says that God would put His Spirit inside of us so that we could then keep His commandments. The Holy Ghost is meant to be the solution to the problem. The Holy Spirit is meant to be inside of me so that I can actually do what God instructs. So I'm wondering, you know, why, why is sin still an issue? Why is sin, if you're forgiven, if my name's written in the Lamb's book of life, and at the sound of the trumpet, I'm with you forever, why is it that I still need to walk so careful a line as to keep sin out of my life? What's the big deal with sin if it's pardoned and forgiven? Why is it that you would still go to these lengths to remove sin from my life, to prevent sin from my life? It's because sin has a nasty result. Sin does something. Jesus is talking about sin. He's talking about the latter days, the last days, the way people will behave and how the world will be. And what's funny is if you read what he says and you turn on the news, it's kind of like, well, wow. That's a simile. It's like or as the days we live in right now. And he begins to talk and he's talking about the things that are going to happen. And then he says this. You can take it down for your notes. Matthew 24. Two verses, 12 and 13. Because sin is increased. Some of your translations may say lawlessness. It's the same thing. If you don't think it's the same thing, look up 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Because sin is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one that endures to the end will be saved. When sin increases, love grows cold. Love, that power to step into a situation that's suffering affliction and turn it completely around. That cause that has the effect of moving curse into blessing. Our identity as believers, our willingness to not be offended, to not hold grudges, to refuse to take vengeance, all of that starts to diminish the more we entertain sin. No wonder Satan is still tempting Christians. No wonder once we become believers, he doesn't say, well, I missed out on that one. I better move on. But he's still throwing stumbling blocks in front of each one of us to get us to stumble and sin. Because as sin increases, love decreases. As sin abounds, love grows cold. And when love grows cold, I no longer have the capacity to deal with the nonsense around me. I separate from it with grudge and offense. I vindicate myself with defensiveness 
aggression. But I think there's something here that we can see. That if we can come to celebrate what God's done in us through the Holy Spirit, that He's put in us the power to make choices and decisions based on conviction, not out of impulse, not out of carnality. All that word means is just your natural self. But supernaturally and spiritually by the Holy Spirit, when somebody hits, we don't have to hit back. When someone slanders, we don't have to defend ourselves. But we can choose to be just like Jesus. Knowing that what's going on here has nothing to do with my reputation or my physical well-being. But there's an attack right here on my love. There's something going on behind the scenes here. Though all I can see now is that you're spreading gossip about me and ruining my reputation. But what's really happening is the devil is working through you to try to diminish my love. And once my love grows cold, there goes those commandments to love my neighbor, to love my heavenly father. And everything that depends on that, all the promises of the word, have nothing to stand on. The attack's never been on your reputation. The attack's never been on your finances. The attack has never been on your well-being in any way, shape, or form. The attack's ultimately on your love. Because if our love can be diminished, we become prone to failure. I told you that we were going to find why sin is a problem. And that's why. Sin makes your love grow cold. And once our love grows cold, failure becomes an option. Failure morally. Failure ethically. Failure relationally. I mentioned before how to never fail was going to be something we're going to find. I'd like to give that to you now. If you're taking notes, you can write down 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. You'll find out many wonderful things about love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I encourage you to read the chapter in your own time. It describes what love is, the patient and kind. It gives a lengthy description. And throughout that whole description, you can be guaranteed it's describing Jesus. And as it's describing Jesus, it's describing who you and I are called to be. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, you see something simple. I want to emphasize three words. Love never fails. Love never fails. Of all those three words, I think my favorite is never. It's never that makes that have any potency whatsoever. That love could bring a power 
and an authority into my life that could produce the effect of success at all times. I've had a number of things in my life that I thought were failures for one reason or another. And I could offer you at the time that they came to pass a number of different reasons. Well, that didn't work because of this, and that didn't work because of that. But the more aware I've become of the power of love and the war against the love that God's placed inside of me, I've come to see that every failure in my life hasn't been a a money issue or a people issue, but it's been a love issue. Because according to the scripture, the difference between success and failure is love. Love can never fail. It will always endure. It will bring about the success that it has been poured out onto the earth by our Heavenly Father to bring about. And all of the setbacks that I've known in anything relationally or or financially, all of those things are just learning experiences. They've never set my worth in the eyes of God. They've never defined who I am in His kingdom. But rather, it's His love and His affection for me that does those things. Now, I want to offer you a a couple of things here. One, the power of perfect love, and then two, the love test. Can you say the love test? Yeah, now don't picture that cheesy thing at the bar that you squeeze and it tells you you're red hot. You red hot. You've never been to a bar, have you? The love test. I'd like to give you a passage of Scripture, and we're going to wind down with this. 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. And John's writing this. John is a disciple who's known as being very close to Jesus. I don't think that there's one that was further, but there is an affection that he has, an awareness He writes so much about the love of God that I have to think it's because he put so much effort into being aware of God's love. Maybe God blessed him with a grace to see or to touch or to become aware of it for the purpose of imparting it to us through inspired writing. But in 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, John's writing to us. And he says, we've come to know and have believed the love which God has for us, period. That sentence by itself. Do you see two things there? We've come to know it and believe it. Know it and believe it. Now, we can finish this sermon with a God bless you goodbye. Have a blessed week. See you Wednesday. Don't forget the car wash. And you could have come into a new knowledge of the love of God because, well, you got information. But that information by itself doesn't accomplish what we desire to see it accomplish in our lives. It's believing it. It's not just knowing that He loves me. But I believe that He loves me. I believe that He'll take care of me. I believe that no matter what happens, the same God that split the sea in two and swallowed up all the enemies of His people will see me through this. I've come to know it and believe it. John goes on to write, 
God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. Abides is a fancy word for lives. We live in it. We don't visit it. We don't come here and get our love tank filled up. Jared, sing me another song because I had a rough week. But we live in it every day. We function in it. We operate in it. We speak in it. We act in it. We abide in it. The one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Now, as if that wasn't good enough, get ready. By this, love is perfected with us so that, can you say so that? So that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Now, here's a because for you. I want you to say because. Now, here's the cause, right? This is the cause. I'm telling you, take the time to read this later and just let every word mean something to you. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Let that blow your mind. As Jesus is, so am I in this world. As he is, he is the one that turns the curse into a blessing. He is the one that turns the disease into health. He is the one that takes death and gives life. He is the one that overcomes darkness with light. And as he is, so am I. And so are you. And then as if it couldn't get better from that, get ready. Verse 18. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears has not been perfected in love. That word involves there could be translated in your Bible includes. It has punishment in it. Fear and suffering go hand in hand. But God's perfect love drives it out. That means in the midst of slander, being tainted by gossip, being hurt or afflicted, being cheated, being stolen from, I can be aware that none of that is going to have any eternal effect on my life. And I can be set free from any anxiety, any fear, because I know that God loves me, that He holds me in His hand, And that he hasn't paid the highest price for me to be tarnished, to be beaten down, to be broken. But rather, he will vindicate and he will elevate. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at chancechurch.com.